Amen. Thank you, Jeff. So good morning. Uh, good to see you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Uh, we continue in, in a series this morning. Actually, we're kind of beginning a series this morning on the fruit of the Spirit. And so you'll see that's our reading from Galatians chapter 5. But then what we'll do is uh, with every theme, we'll bounce to some other places in the scriptures to pick up that theme and, and flesh it out a little bit. So this morning we're going to read from Galatians 5 and then from James chapter 1 and then also from Philippians chapter 4. Uh, the Pew Bible page numbers are listed there if you want to grab a Pew Bible and, and read along with us or it'll be on the screen behind me or on your screen at home. So let's read. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we're doing this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and the list is found there in Galatians 5. Paul contrasts in that chapter things like love, joy, peace, and so forth with what he calls the works of the flesh earlier there in Galatians 5. Things like idolatry, sexual morality, jealousy, fits of rage, divisions. And one way to think of it is this, that the works of the flesh that are listed just above are what comes naturally from the soil of the human heart without God. The fruit of the Spirit, which is what we read, are the things that come supernaturally from a heart that has been cultivated by God over time. So just like in my yard, uh, if I do nothing, if I go out and do nothing in my yard, it will quickly be overgrown with weeds, especially this time of year with all the rain and the sunshine. But if I want flowers to grow, then I have to prepare. I have to plant and mulch and water and fertilize and prune and worry over them and then Sometimes they don't even grow when I do all that. But the works of the flesh are the weeds of the human heart. They are a sign in your life of spiritual neglect. The fruit of the Spirit is the beauty of a person that God has planted and watered and worried over. That is now bearing fruit. They are the evidences of God, the Holy Spirit's presence and power in a life. Now I'm old enough to remember the days when there were just about orange groves everywhere in Polk County. You could drive down Thompson Nursery Road or Highway 27 and it was just it was just orange trees as far as the eye could see. Not anymore. They've all been bulldozed. And I'm also old enough to remember when patience and kindness and goodness and self-control were common virtues in our culture. Not anymore. And that is our evangelistic opportunity. It's why we want to do this series because Christians really can step into that space that's been left by the vacuum of culture in, in our country. The world that we live in no longer produces people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so forth. But the fruit of the Spirit means that Christianity does. 
And when you're going through a crisis like the one we've been navigating now for all of these months, and who knows how long to the future we'll be facing these things, when you're going through something like that, you need character. That's what gets you through. That's the thing that causes you to soar through it. But at the moment, at this moment, character is the very thing that's in crisis. And so you see the double meaning in our, in our uh, sermon series title here. We need character to get through crisis, but character is the very thing that's in crisis. And as a nation, we do not have sufficient character to solve our problems. And so we as people of faith need to lead the way desperately by being different, by being people that stand out like light in the darkness. And so my question is, are you different? Do you zig when everybody else zags? You could look at the fruit of the Spirit and say this is one way. God is saying, here's the way my people are marked as being different than the world around them. And so the, our topic this morning is just this issue of joy. Do you possess a supernatural ability to be joyful no matter what's going on around you? Because people who are filled with the Holy Spirit are bearing the fruit of joy. And because the, the world needs people like that. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning, joy. Now it's fun. We're going to see something really, I don't feel particularly joyful this morning. Is anybody else with me? And so I'm the preacher who has to talk about joy, not feeling particularly joyful. I had a tough day yesterday for a lot of reasons, not just college football. Don't go there. Don't have a dirty imagination. I think I'm that just unspiritual, but some other things. Okay. So this is going to be fun, isn't it? Because what we're going to see is joy really isn't about what you, what you feel anyway. It's something else entirely. And so we're going to see the need for joy, and then the practice of joy, and then the strength of joy that can come into your life to change you and to change those around you. So first, why we need joy, this theme of joy. Let's just talk about the need for it. More than ever now, more than ever, we need joy, because this is a time of great despair. Uh, it is. It's a time of great despair. And I could give all kinds of anecdotal evidence of this. I did, I'll just give you one story. I did a funeral a few weeks ago for a friend, <clears throat> a high school friend. Her father had died, but just weeks before her mother had died. And I, I, went to, um, I went to the viewing for her mother's funeral. And the story she told me just broke my heart. Her father had dementia and became physically aggressive uh, in the, the, the degenerative you know, nature of his disease. And her mother had no choice but the Baker Act. And she did that uh, in, on March 13th. <clears throat> and the country shut down two days later. And, uh, and she, as it turned out, was not able to see him after she went through that traumatic experience of having the Baker Act, her husband of 50-something years. And uh, she was so filled with regret and grief that uh, and, and being denied access to him that within three months she'd lost the will to live and uh, she was perfectly healthy in March she died in July and the doctor says she died of a broken heart literally I mean there's a study recently I don't know if you saw that showed that as many as 25% of young people in our country have contemplated suicide in the last six months it's a time of great despair we're in the middle of a Massive mental health crisis, but the pandemic has only accelerated trends that have long been developing. What's happening is the philosophical underpinnings of our culture have left us with unprecedented personal freedom, but, ha but it hasn't made us any happier. Just the opposite, actually. As a culture, we, the more hyper-individualized we become, the more we lose touch with any purpose that's larger than ourselves. And so we are now a people that have unlimited amounts of personal freedom, but the trade-off is there's no longer any meaning to life. 
and the result is despair. Or, <clears throat> excuse me, what the philosophers call existential angst. This sense of disorientation and confusion because each individual is solely responsible for giving meaning to life because there's no longer any overarching story that we belong to that tells us who we are and how we should live, but it's too much pressure. And so what happens is you end up in crisis with no meaning, all of this freedom, but not with no idea of how you're supposed to use it or what you're supposed to pursue to find the meaning and purpose that our hearts so desperately need to live. This has been going on for years, for generations now. It's been eroding. And so this is what the person, this is what James is describing, actually. This person here in uh, James 1, look at verse 6, who is like a wave of the sea. Now think of the, this should be very familiar to Floridians, right? Like up and down and up and down and the rolling of the waves, driven and tossed by the wind there. So up and down and back and forth. This person who is stirred up in all kinds of ways emotionally is just chaotic on the inside. Double-minded, he says there in verse 8. And that is a Greek word for psyche with the prefix meaning two. So this is literally a person whose psyche is divided at its core. There's, no, there's, no, uh, there's nothing unified inside of them, and so they're driven and they're, they're pushed and pulled in all of this in all of the different directions, and so they're unstable, he says there in verse 8, in all of their ways. They're never settled. They're never content. There's nothing solid about them. They're easily picked up and moved around because they're full of doubt. And that's the problem. They're so mixed up in their thinking about things. They don't know what's real and what's not. They can't distinguish truth and error, good and evil. Everything's just kind of fuzzy. Everything's mushy. And as a result, they're all over the place emotionally, constantly swinging back and forth, back and forth from one extreme to the other. And then influenced by every new piece of news that comes out almost on a minute by minute basis. And so their insides become powerfully shaped by what's happening around them. And if I think we've all had some experience of this, and you know just how emotionally exhausting, just exhausting that is. And so it results in despair. Now joy comes in. Joy comes in to that experience. And joy is, a, is something that is the opposite of all that I've tried to describe. Joy is a buoyancy of the heart. That's the way I'm going to say it. The one who doubts is double-minded. They're constantly tossed to and fro. They're unstable like a wave. But the person who has a joy is like a buoy that rides the waves. Nothing can sink them. The storms come, but they stay afloat. And they stay put because, you know, I, I, a, buoy is, a buoy is tied off. They're tied down to an anchor. They're anchored in place. And no matter how strong the winds become, no matter how high, how high the waves are, they, they, stay in, they stay put, they stay in place, they're anchored there to that spot, and nothing can sink them. And that's the image I want you to have in your imagination, that you can be like a buoy, emotionally. And so secondly, this is why we need joy. Secondly then, how do you get that joy? And this is the bulk of what I want to say this morning, and here comes the part that I was trying to allude to a minute ago, and what you learn from the Bible, and this is, we've got to be really careful here, but what you learn, I think, in the scriptures is, is that for a Christian, joy is not a feeling, it's an action. Let me say that again. Joy is actually not a feeling. It's an action. It's a command. Joy is, is not feeling happy. It's actually what you do when you don't feel happy. You practice joy. You have to practice it. And so we see this in James 1 again. He says there, verse 2, look there. 
Count it all joy, he says. So James is writing to these people who are going through a really tough time, something more significant and severe than we are, and he says, he doesn't say, you know, it's good to see you so happy despite all that's going on around you. No, he doesn't say that. They're not happy. They're facing trials of various kinds. They're, they're full of despair, and they're, they're suffering greatly. And so he says, when you're in that kind of time, count it joy. It's a really interesting word. Uh, I was really surprised to learn. It's a, the Greek word hegemony there, which as a noun refers to the leadership of a community or the people in charge or the narrative. It really describes the narrative that is the dominant narrative among a society or a tribe of people. It's a buzzword actually in our culture right now to describe that, this dominant narrative that society takes shape around. And so what James is saying is that when you're going through a hard time, the way you get joy is to take yourself in hand and to remind yourself of what is true until it starts to make a difference in how you feel. You have to lead yourself to joy. You have to, you have to tap in to the right narrative. To the, you, have to, you have to make the narrative of what God is doing in your life, the dominant narrative that your emotional life, take, life takes shape around. It won't just happen. You've got to make sure that your theology is affecting your emotions and not the other way around, which is why theology is so important. He says there, count it all joy, he goes on, and then he says, for you know, he says there in verse 3. And that's the important thing. You have to remind yourself of what you know. You've got to keep preaching to yourself until what you feel comes in line with what you believe. That's the road to joy. And the problem is that suffering makes us fools. Our amygdala gets over, gets, you know, works overdrive. It gets hijacked and we stop thinking. And that's where a lot of our despair comes from. We, we quickly become out of touch with reality because there's so much emotion. We're being flooded with all, these, all this emotion and hormones and so forth, and we get irrationally afraid and depressed. And so when you're going through a hard time and it's weighing you down, James says what you need is you need to think well. He says what you need is wisdom. Look there, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he interrupts what he's saying. Let him ask. And wisdom there is being in touch with reality. It's being able to look at the big picture and take it all in and remember in the moment what's real and what's not real, what's good and what's, what's bad, what's true and what's not, and to be anchored in place by what you know to be true, by what you believe, by the convictions that have really bore down into your heart. Well, well what's real? What's true? What's the stuff that we know but we forget as we go through these times that James is describing here? And let me summarize a bit for the sake of time, but James says a number of things. He goes on now to tell us, to remind us what is real, what we need to know, what we need to be convinced is real when we're going through something like this so that we can be anchored in place. And the first thing he says is he says that suffering is a grace. Paul says this too in Philippians 1:29. It's given by God as a gift to build your spiritual muscles. If you're physically out of shape, you've got to go to the gym and go through the pain. But on the other side, you build strength and health, and suffering is the gym. It's where you get spiritually healthy. You go through suffering, and if you allow God to do the work he desires to do, you come out on the other side, and you're more humble, and you're more grateful, and you're not as afraid as before. And so God has ordained suffering because it produces, verse 3, steadfastness. And that word is the opposite of all that I've described uh, from the verses 6 and 7 down below. This is the person who's constant and immovable and full of courage, and courage is the gateway to all the other virtues. 
C.S. Lewis said that. He said of courage that it's not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. And he meant that if you do not possess sufficient courage, you won't get any of the other virtues because you'll give up. You won't push through the hard stuff. You'll give up too soon. You'll give up before you can become a person of death. And isn't that what James says? Look there, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this, by the way, is why he goes on in those really weird verses down in verses 9 and 10 to say that the lowly brother actually should boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And those are the most un-American verses you'll find in the Bible. They are at direct odds with the American way of life. But what he says there is that when life brings you low, you should celebrate. (laughs) Because though it's painful, it's bringing all the really good stuff into your life. Your comfort and security are being ripped away, yes, but you're getting more of Jesus, which is way better. See? That's reality. What's reality is that less comfort and more of God is better than more stuff and less of God. Humble circumstances are a high position. They are a reason to boast, but to have it all is actually the less desirable option. It's a spiritual liability. Now, don't get hung up on the circumstances. The words here describe an attitude of the heart, and that's what's the most important thing. But a heart that is lowly and a heart that that is proud and self-exalting are being contrasted, and you can be wealthy and successful and have it all and be humble. Now, it's a miracle, but it is possible. And you can be humbled and not be humble. But what James is saying is that whatever gets you to the place of humility, whatever it is, it's a reason to celebrate because all of God's best things come to the humble. So instead of suffering or potential suffering being the reason why you lose your joy, James flips that way of thinking on its head. He says material and physical loss is actually gain because the truth is riches are fleeting. Verse 11, we didn't read. It says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so when God begins to take those things away from you, it's actually an occasion for joy. He's doing good to you. You don't have to lose your joy. You actually can increase your joy as long as you look through the wide-angle lens at what is happening in your life. But let's be honest. It's sometimes hard to see how all the pieces fit together. I should amend that, actually, and say it's nearly impossible, especially when you're in the middle of a crisis. And that's why James says that we should pray. Pray for wisdom. He says what you need, what you need is wisdom. Pray for the ability to keep the right perspective, to remember what is real and what is not. And so if you want joy, you first have to get wisdom. If you want joy, you have to be a person of wisdom. And then, and then see, once you, once you kind of reorient yourself, you know, intellectually and emotionally, once your head gets right, once you're thinking rightly, then there's one more thing that you have to do. Because feelings don't necessarily just follow, right? Remember what I said earlier, joy is an action, it's a command, it's not, it's not feeling happy, it's not a description of, of how you're feeling on the inside, it's what you do when you don't feel happy. And so in Philippians there, when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, always again I'd say rejoice, he's not telling them how they should feel, he's telling them what they should do when they're not feeling what they should be feeling. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of those verses, he said, there's all the difference in the world between rejoicing and being happy. You cannot make yourself happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. And so notice the connection. 
there in, in Philippians 4, and also in that assurance of pardon passage that Jeff read in Colossians 1, there's a connection between joy and thanksgiving, and, and Jeff, Jeff kind of let the cat out of the bag in his prayer a minute ago. There's a, there's a, there's a uh, connection between joy and thanksgiving. The antidote to despair is thanksgiving. He says, rejoice, don't be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving. And then in Colossians 1, he says, may you be strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. And so Thanksgiving is there as the antidote, as the, as the doorway to joy. Thanksgiving is something you do. In the context of prayer, it means making a list of all the things God has done for you and just working your way through them until your insides catch up. A friend of mine was talking about this just this week, that he has a practice with his family. He has a, number, he has a bunch of teenagers, four teenagers, uh, and he has a practice of going through all the ways that God has provided for them and filled their lives with good things. And he makes them all sit down and do this on a regular basis. And he said most of the time he has to fight with everybody in the house to get them to the table. They're grumpy and complaining and you know, all of that, as we all are wont to do, but particularly in those, ages, those years between 13 and 19, it seems. But he says, you know, the kids complain and everybody kind of has the grumps, but every time by the end, the room is completely different. The act of rejoicing, of giving thanks, of forcing yourself to acknowledge the way that God has been good and the way that he's brought good into your life, it leads to the feelings of joy. Now, an interesting thing is that the Bible actually institutionalizes rejoicing. God commands it in big ways. I was so struck uh, reading Nehemiah a number of weeks ago in our community Bible reading. We read about this. Uh, and I was struck by how forceful Ezra and Nehemiah were in telling the people to rejoice. Uh, there's a story there in chapter 8 where the, they, they read the law out loud to the people and they're, they're unsettled by the way the law calls out their sins and the leaders have to come and they calm the people and, uh, and they reminded them uh, of their holiness. But here's what they said is that what holiness for the people meant was not just that they live kind of in the uh, of their sin. They calmed them, it says, and they reminded them that holiness required them to celebrate. And it says there in Nehemiah 8.12, and maybe this should probably be my life verse, but here's what it says. It said, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to make great rejoicing. They were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which was commanded by, in the law. It was one of the three feasts, actually. So I want you to know three times a year, God commanded his people to stop everything, to take a vacation and throw a party for a whole week. That's in the Bible. as an act of worship because God is glorified in our enjoyment of him and all of his gifts for his sake and he wants our joy and that's how you get joy you set things aside and you intentionally fill your life with rejoicing making great rejoicing until your insides catch up you have to do it before you feel it but the promise is, is that if you'll be engaged in the doing of it that your feelings will come behind and that's what we mean by practicing joy. Joy is not a feeling, it's an action, it's a command. It's what you do when you don't feel happy. But then lastly, let's talk about what comes next. What happens when you learn to practice joy and then your feelings start to catch up and you actually begin to feel on the inside because of this work you've been doing? Well, then what the Bible says is that there's a strength that comes into your life. There's a strength in joy. And I'm thinking again of that passage in Nehemiah 8 and the famous verse there that says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. 
Colossians 1 makes the same point. It says, may you be strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, joy is what gets you through the hard stuff. The fruit of the Spirit here, they're all connected. They reinforce one another. So, love, then what's next? Joy, and then, then what? Then peace, patience, self-control, and everything that comes after. But joy is what gives you the strength to endure long enough to see all of those other things come to fruition in your life as well. Now, <clears throat> this isn't a sermon on Nehemiah, but I want to ask, what does it mean the joy of the Lord will be your strength? And I think there are really two things. And the first is, it means that God is happy. That God is happy. God in himself. He's so happy that he can't keep his happiness to himself. His happiness is constantly spilling over into our lives, into all that he's made. God is not fundamentally grumpy. Can I get an amen? He's fundamentally happy. The theologians call this the blessedness of God. And so, if that's true, then here's what I want you to see. If that's true, then life is ultimately bent towards joy. That's hard sometimes to see, at least, in a fallen world, but it's true because God desires to share his happiness with us. He can't help himself. And so don't miss the phrase there in James chapter 1 that God is one who gives generously to all without reproach. The problem is never God's lack of generosity. It's always our lack of gratitude. And Philip Bernstein has said, we have no right to ask when sorrow comes, why did this happen to me? Unless we ask the same question for every joy that comes our way also. And as Trinity, God has been eternally sharing his happiness within himself and he wants to share it with us too. And that can make you profoundly hopeful. You can expect your life to be filled with good even when it's not, even when you can't see it at least. Take the wide angle lens and know you can push through because whatever sadness you're going through, it's coming untrue resurrection is coming. This is the promise of the scripture. You may sow in tears, but you will reap with shouts of joy. Our future, if you're a person of faith and you're here, your future is a wedding feast. If a Christian, that's your worst case scenario. Like not the weird, awkward weddings you've been to where everybody's kind of like cringy the whole time. Like the best wedding you've ever been to. Okay? And that's your future. That's your worst case scenario. And knowing that can strengthen you to endure whatever you might face in this life through the various trials that come. But even beyond that, the joy of the Lord that can strengthen you, at least in Nehemiah 8, is the wonder of having your sins forgiven. The context of that verse teaches us this. There in that chapter, Ezra read the law to the people and they were convicted of their sins and they began to weep because they felt such guilt and such shame before the Lord. And that was right. They had the right intuition, but they didn't keep going. They didn't push through it. They didn't keep going to the next part, past the conviction. And so Ezra corrects them, and he says, it's a fascinating. You ought to read it later if you didn't read it. He says, don't, don't be grieved. Rejoice. Now, how is that? Why is that? Why is that the right response? Well, all the commentators say that what's going on here is all of this that's happening there is taking place during the fellowship offering, which was outlined in Leviticus chapter 3. And there what would happen was the priest would be there in front of the people and he would take a, a lamb or a goat of some kind that was being sacrificed and he would confess the sins of the people and they would symbolically, you know, he would lay his hands upon uh, the, the sacrifice and the sins of the people would symbolically have been transferred 
over to the animal and the animal would then be killed as a substitute and the blood would have been thrown against the side of the altar symbolizing the satisfaction of God's wrath, his holy wrath against sin. And then what they were to do is they were to take the animal and cook it and to have a feast to celebrate God's forgiveness of their sins. And the only way to go through life emotionally, buoyed, against all the bad stuff that happens, and a lot does because we live in a fallen world, a world that's off its hinges. But the only way to get through it is to know that no matter what, God delights in you, that he does not treat you as your sins deserve nor repay you for your bad decisions or your moral failings. And here's how you can know that. His joy, the joy of the Lord that is our strength, his joy is what sent Jesus Christ into the world to redeem every sin and every regret. And the Bible says that just like that animal At the sacrifice, our sins were counted against Jesus and he was killed as a substitute in our place. And his precious blood has satisfied God's justice so that there is now no condemnation for all of those who put their faith and trust in him. And that is a reason to celebrate. And knowing that can bring a joy into your life that no turn of circumstances can take away. Do you see that? Knowing that your sins have been forgiven like that can put a smile on your face that no frowning providence can erase. And you can live with a sense of strength to face whatever trials come and not be tossed around, but to remain steadfast. Because blessed is the man who remains steadfast, verse 12 says, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, I need to finish, but just one application Uh, from Philippians chapter 4, and we're actually going to come back to this, so just pin this somewhere, hold this thought, and when we get to gentleness later, we're going to come back. But I want you to see that one application of what this kind of this steadfastness that God desires that we live in is what he calls us to there in Philippians 4 verse 5, where he says, Rejoice, don't be anxious, rejoice, and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Man, don't we need an army of reasonable people running around Facebook these days? Hello? Do you see the evangelist opportunity of being people who can be so buoyed that you can be reasonable? It feels like 10 reasonable people could change the world. And what what it's saying there is the more you replace anxiety with rejoicing, the more reasonable you become. And I don't think there's a greater truth that we need through the next two months. Everyone, everyone is going to be trying to prove they're right. Let's stop worrying about whether we're right. And let's be reasonable. There's a line from uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, his book, The Great Divorce, where he's, it's a picture of heaven, and, and he's talking about the people still on earth, and he says, there is already joy enough in the little finger of a great saint to waken all the dead things of the universe to life. We have a mission of joy. We have a mission of joy. And the story that I think I, I keep thinking of over and over again is Paul and Silas there in Acts in prison. They've been beaten. They're chained to the walls. Uh, it's been a really bad day, probably a worse day than any of us have had. Uh, and yet what it says is, you know, they're in that place of despair and isolation and loneliness. Paul and Silas are singing to the Lord. They're rejoicing. And the experience to all the rest of those people there in that prison was so profound. They heard those men rejoicing, and it says that the jailer, who was a bad man, 
was so moved by their rejoicing that he came to them. There was an earthquake and some things happened and he ran into their cell and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was so overwhelmed by their rejoicing. Now we, we have a mission. Rick Lear, I expect a big amen in this. We have a mission of making great rejoicing. You with me? We evangelize by making great rejoicing. But that doesn't mean you go through life with a super spiritual smile on your face. Denying the harsh realities that life can bring. It's an act of holy defiance. Against the circumstances you're up against. Against whatever it may be that you're feeling on the inside. And this is the way of Christian joy. So we're going to sing. In just a minute. And here's my advice. Sing. Sing louder than you've ever sung before. No matter how you feel, sing. Because singing is an act of rejoicing. And do the action of joy until the feelings come. And go through life doing that because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Think about that. A fruit of the Spirit. With just like the flowers and the vegetables in your garden, the fruit of the Spirit, your job is to plant and water and fertilize and then trust God for the growth but to meet him at that first step of obedience. And so can we prepare ourselves to do just that now? Would you pray with me? And so, Father, some of us, we, we know far too well this despair, this crushing sense of guilt and loneliness and confusion, or just the malaise of all of these months of disruption that have just sit on our soul and we just, we're just numb. And the disappointment the frustration and we we just we we want to we we confess that to you father we bring that that that's real that's the real us that's that's where we really are and we know that you long for us to bring our real you to you our our real us to you and meet you in that place and we ask that you would but then we pray you would give us the strength in this moment to fight back in holy defiance against the spiritual apathy and the the numbness that can come into our life and to to take ourselves in hand and to take hold of ourselves and to sing now despite what we feel not to wait around until we feel the things that we should but to have have that act of obedience to 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 grab a hold of ourselves and to do the things to shake ourselves off out of that lethargy and to sing and we ask that as we sow in our singing that you would come and produce the fruit of joy in us that we might be a people that are empowered to go and make great rejoicing as an, as an act of witness to your greatness and your worthiness. Oh, you are worthy. You are worthy of this song that we'll sing now. You are worthy of our joy. And so come and work it into us that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, great job singing. Uh, the good news of Christianity is just what we sang, that there is a joy that's seeking you. Isn't that great? I love that line. There's a joy that's seeking you. The trick is don't close your heart off to it. Don't allow all of this disruption, all of the, the uncertainty about the future. Don't allow all the things that we're going through, the trials of various kinds that have come and are coming. Don't allow them to cause you to shut your heart off to that joy that's seeking you. Let it overtake you. Amen. It can give you resources that you need, the character that you need to push through and actually soar through the crisis that we're going through as a culture. And that's so badly what the world needs. And so we're sent now on this mission of joy making. 
uh, in a world that has lost its way in many ways. And so if you're, if you're a person of faith, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive this benediction. It is the promise of God's joy overflowing into your life every moment of every day until we see one another again. Rest in that promise and go making great rejoicing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.